Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. Before my message today, I want to reflect on a particular voice in this series we're calling Voice, where we think about the voice of God in our lives becoming more primary in our lives. And I want to reflect for a moment here on God's voice, God's heart, spoken through Martin Luther King Jr. In his book, Kingmaker, Dr. Goodloe writes, when it comes to influence, we are all, all people equal in essence, but we are not all equal in influence. Dr. King never held a publicly elected office, yet he was a person who wielded tremendous influence. He goes on to say in his book that uh, a kingmaker, his definition, Dr. Goodloe's definition of kingmaker, is someone who enters a room where uh, they don't hold the highest title. They may not even have a title compared to the political power in the room, and yet they walk out of the room with the most influence. I'm convinced, he writes, that Martin Luther King Jr. was the most transformational figure of the 20th century. And this is provocative, what he says here, and it's why I'm reading this particular quote today. Uh, The most transformational figure of the 20th century. And it's no far stretch to make the argument that he was one of the most consequential individuals who has ever walked the earth. And I think it's hard to argue that. (laughs) At one point, at least for the span of 11 years during the civil rights movement, he had the voice, the temperament, tone, and the moral fortitude to advance our nation further than any other person during the period and time in which they lived. Dr. John Meacham just recently uh, informed me of something that I did not know, that four days before Dr. King's assassination... In Memphis, outside of that room 306, Dr. King was here. Four days before his death, he was here in Washington, D.C. He delivered what would be his final Sunday morning message, Sunday morning sermon at the National Cathedral. In fact, the speaking lectern, uh, stage left, the pulpit there today is the same pulpit that he spoke from that morning. His message that day was titled, Remaining Awake Through a Great Revolution, and his, his message was about how I will never become the person I was designed to be, I was supposed to be, if you are not able to become the person you are supposed to be. And you cannot become the person you were designed to be if I'm not becoming free, able to walk and step as the man that God designed me to be. Not only is that a a powerful theology view of God uh, and God's view of humans, but I think it's a pretty remarkable vision for a country. And so I want to begin in prayer here today, really thanking God for the idea of voice and the idea of influence and for this particular influence that we celebrate this weekend. So pray with me. Father God, we're grateful for voice communication, words. We're looking in this series of how you became that 
in the flesh. I thank you for influence. And today, as our country marks this on the calendar, rather than just a day off work, a holiday, we, as a faith community, thank you for your voice, your influence, and the man who changed so much and really shaped the soul of our country in so many ways. And may Dr. King be an example to us, a reminder to us this weekend of what you're calling all of us to be in our particular work situations, on the streets we live, in our own families, that we are to grow and develop the voice of God, the voice of hope, the voice of love, the voice of mercy in this broken, hurting world. Amen. We, we put up a real tree, Christmas tree, every year. And this year decided to go to Winchester to the tree farm that Amy's sister has been getting her trees from recently. Not only is it a lot cheaper, it's a beautiful tree farm. And so uh, I don't remember which of our daughters found the tree first that we would cut down and bring home. But one of them was like, oh my gosh, I found it. And so we're all coming from different, different aisles of Christmas trees, I guess, different rows. And the sister, her sister was the next to see it and said, yeah, oh, wow, this is great. We found it. We found it. And then I was next. And I'm thinking, you know, we're an hour and 20 minutes from home. I just want to get this tree and get home. And I'm like, it's perfect. It's a perfect tree. I loved it. And we're, Amy, it's over here, over, you know. And she, Amy gets to our row and she, her mouth is sort of halfway open. And she's like, are you guys kidding me? Is this a joke? And we're like looking at her and that tree is way too big for our house. It's enormous. And I just watched this battle ensue between the girls and Amy. It's perfect. It's, it's ridiculously big. What's wrong with you guys? And, and so finally they all turned to me and Amy's like, I don't know what you think. but And I said, <clears throat> I think it's great. I say we cut this baby down and we, we head home. And so we're in line to pay for our tree. And uh, the guys are, you know, loading them up. And I hear one of the, the balers, tree balers, say to another, wow, this tree's so big it may not fit through our baler. And that's, that's when it all came rushing back to me that I've been married to Amy for a long time, and on these kinds of situations, in, the, in these situations where there's no bias, there's nothing really to win in the argument, when she has an instinct on something, she's almost always right. And I, that voice, her voice is getting louder in my head, and now that voice is starting to take over my brain, and that's about the moment where she turns to me as we're in line, and she says, oh, by the way, you know, my sister's tree last year was this variety we've never seen before. The branches, the ne- the, it was so different. And it started dropping its needles like in full volume, like a couple days after Thanksgiving. And I remember, no joke, a week before Christmas, there wasn't a needle on the tree. It was just a stick tree. It was, it was the weirdest thing. And she said, uh, on top of this tree being the biggest tree, Christmas tree in, in human history, I think... It's that variety. 
it, it just looks odd. The branch, I think it's that tree, and I think this thing's going to lose all of its needles. And I say, I think this is a, I think I'm directly quoting myself here. I say, no way, babe, that's crazy. That won't happen. And so a couple days after Christmas, we're like, wow, there's a lot of needles under the tree. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, after Thanksgiving. And I don't know, maybe a week or two later, it's, it's like Reagan would stomp her foot on the floor, and you'd hear like 8,000 needles fall through the tree. And uh, man, man, was Amy right. And uh, we, when, we, when we set up the tree and Reagan you know, cuts the netting off the tree, it just exploded into the corner. And I mean, there was no justifying. There was no, hey, I think it's fine. We just immediately, we didn't even give Amy the chance to say, I told you. We were like, oh my gosh, babe, you were, you were so right. And I, I, I posted this video on Instagram uh, a, a couple days after we, <laughs> a couple days after we cleaned up, cleaned up the tree. Uh, it, it took us two hours. To clean this up. I've got a couple pictures, I think. Um, yeah, so my Instagram post said, uh, with this video, uh, Amy was right, Amy is right, Amy is always right, Amy is always right about everything. And that, that was my way of, that was my way of trying to uh, redeem, redeem the self, my, myself. When it comes to the topic of voice, are you aware, are you aware of the fact, of this fact, I, I hope you are, that you are listening to someone in life? Right now, you're doing, I don't mean right now in this instant you're listening to me. I mean this month, the last couple of months. Maybe, maybe the primary voice in your life has been primary for six months, maybe for years. You are always listening to someone's voice. Maybe a plethora, an abundance of, of voices. You are following someone, whether you're conscious of it or not. The question is not, am I? Is Brad right? Is there a primary voice in my life? The question is, who is primarily speaking to you and informing you in life right now? Who has been that voice? Who is that voice? And boy, there's a lot of possibilities. Let's just consider some examples. Maybe the primary voice in your life is a voice you haven't actually physically heard with your ears for a long time, years, maybe, maybe 12 years, maybe 20 years. And I, what came to mind is maybe a college professor that you either loved or, or their view of the world resonated so deeply with you or there's something in their own conviction that just kind of grabbed you or, or maybe a voice of vision. Maybe uh, a college professor who believes capitalism is or should be the envy of the world. Or, or, or maybe the opposite. Capitalism is the core of evil. <laughs> and that has formed the way you go to work every day, the way you look at your future. Maybe the primary voice in your life has been so recently, and it's a voice 
of all places and all things, it's someone you work with. A pessimistic person. You work with a Debbie Downer, and you would never consciously think that that voice, this negative person at work, would actually be the primary influence of words and thoughts in your life right now, but it's something about the negativity maybe that has tapped an anger deep in you or a hurt deep in you, and feeding that negativity has given you a voice to push back or to finally speak out or to vent out your anger. How about this? Maybe the voice that's primary in your life isn't a specific voice from one person. Maybe it's like a voice in society that you've heard for a long time, like, like the American dream voice. And there's lots of variations of the American dream. How about the one that says, for you to have value, do you, for you to have true success, you must collect titles, rewards, promotions, visible wealth. Is it possible that, that a voice... Words, that kind of idea is what informs you the most? What about the toxic voice of worry that says, and this, this is just running in the background of your mind throughout your day, that there's much to worry about? Instead of thinking about putting your energy and focus on what God is doing in your life right now, what he's building and developing in you, what he's stripping away, the old that he's stripping, the new, the, the confidence, the hope that he is trying to hardwire into you, you can't focus on that. You can't focus on who he is, what he's saying to you, what he's developing in you, because the primary voice in your life has taught you that you can actually control the future if you think a lot about what might happen, what could happen. And it, it, it manifests in your life in the form of worry. You become a worrier because you're trying to control. It's the one way you can control the future, and that's, that's when, we, when we say it out loud, it's ridiculous. How about this? This, is a, this will be troubling to all of us, this example. The incredibly toxic, dangerous voice of a mom or dad who speaks uh, especially to a young child some version of you'll never amount to anything. Or I'll be at your game this time. And I say that because uh, a family came to my mind, a family I've known for many years. Uh, the parents divorced when the kids were very young. And I've watched these kids grow up in a home with a mom and a stepdad where I, I'm going to use the word unconditional when I say love. The love is patient and sweet. Just such an environment of good. And then the dad who left home when the kids were young, he's, he's the kind of dad who shows up particularly in the, in the boy's life, the young man's life, randomly once a year, maybe twice a year, usually in the form of a phone call. 
I remember one instance where I was uh, brought into this, where the dad had called the son, which was exciting to the son, but it turned out the adults could translate this for him. The dad actually needed something from the son. And when the, when the son was, I'm going to say 15, 16 maybe, one of these random phone calls happened and the dad said, hey, your, your birthday this year, which was, you know, five or six months coming. On your birthday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up at your house. I'm going to pick you up and we're going to go, we're going to go have fun together. We're going to go do something great. And man, the power of words. I watched that young man become obsessed, so excited. I, I, I won't say every time I saw him, he talked about his birthday. And in three months, my dad's got, in two months, we're gonna, we, might, we might do an overnighter somewhere. We, next month on my birthday. His parents were worried, his mom and stepdad were worried, I was concerned. And, and you know how this story goes. You already know. Not only did the dad not show up, there was no phone call. There was no card. And then five months later, when that next random call happened, the dad had no recollection, no mention of the birthday. And you know the voice that that young man was listening to? Actually, the primary voice wasn't his dad's voice. Hey, I'll be there this time on your birthday. It was his own voice saying, there's something about me that's forgettable. There's something about me that isn't worth it or isn't good enough. What's the primary voice in your life? Who is it? What is it? Okay, I'm going to kind of settle these, uh, these examples down into this. What I think may be most dangerous today to you and me generally in our country right now as a voice a driving, dictating, worldview-forming voice for many Americans right here in Northern Virginia are the words of division, loud opinion, self-focused pride in the form of political pundits, News sources, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put journalism in quotes here because it's become harder and harder to, to find real, true journalism today. Right and left is just so biased. And social media. It's amazing how many Americans, I would say, this is my opinion, this is my observation of just society and just conversations and my view of social media. I believe many, maybe most, I don't know, Americans' souls are being fed by that voice. And it's soul-depleting. It depletes our compassion. It steals from us empathy. The character that God wants to be developing in us. His way of responding to chaos. The way God wants you and me to speak about the future the way he sees the future. And this voice today of division and opposition and opinion, it's robbing us, it's stealing from what God wants to be saying to us. 
A friend of mine who lives in Georgia, her name is Gina, last year, this is just a simple kind of, she probably didn't put a lot of thought into it, she reposted on Instagram someone she follows, and I screenshot it, and I remembered it a, a few weeks ago preparing for the series, and I, uh, we're going to put it on the screen here. Now, you, you, I don't expect you to be able to read all of this. It's a, the, the friend who posted this, her friend who posted this, picture of her living room with the TV, and there's a White House press conference happening on the TV, it doesn't matter which administration, that's not the point of this. If your eyes are good enough, you'll see that's Jen Psaki, so that means it's recent. Uh, this is the Biden administration, doesn't matter. That, that could be Sarah Huckabee. And the friend said, make sure you leave plenty of time in your day for God to refresh your soul. And she's just using this as an example. It's not about who's on the screen, it's not about the administration. She says here, I would love to encourage my friends to read God's words and worship more than you listen to this, meaning more than you listen to the national debate and everything that's happening in our country and the state of the world and political opinion. She goes on to say, in feeling the need to be well-informed, make sure you leave plenty of time in your day for God to refresh your soul. And then on the right, she says, all of this kind of information meaning on the television and in news sources and social media, it's too much for humans to carry. And this is why I screenshotted it. It's just too much for us to carry. It will affect people spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. And I don't know how to gauge this, how many Americans start their day in the first minutes of their day at the breakfast table with coffee, taking into their minds, into their soul, the state of the world. What newspaper editors think. I don't know how many Americans start consuming that into their soul before they even get out of bed. I've done that. There are times where it's just, you know, that I'm turning the alarm off my phone and then I'm, what? And I start scrolling and then 10 minutes later I'm reading what the Republicans did overnight, what the Democrats did overnight. Which president has classified documents? It's getting confusing. <laughs> the jokes this week were pretty funny about, will Trump and Biden be in a prison cell together? I mean, you know, and it is a joke. But we are taking this into our work, our family conversations, our relationships. We're allowing this to become the voice of our own influence, how we influence, how we speak into the world. It's worth repeating, and this time I'm going to just read two verses from John 1. John begins his gospel, gospel being the remarkable news of something that's happened. John's gospel of, of Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and we know he's describing Jesus. He makes that clear. In the beginning was the voice, the words of God. And the words of God, the message of God, the heart of God, what God would present to us, not only created in the beginning, but was himself God. He was with the Father and he was God. Jesus was God. And this word became flesh. God's heart to speak, to be known, to be personal with us. So much so he became flesh, made his dwelling here. And then John goes on to say this, and this is the part that's kind of easy to just skim read. We have seen, meaning we, the apostles, his followers, 
We have seen the glory. Glory means substance, not ideology or thought or philosophy. We've actually seen the substance. That's what glory means. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. These early church leaders, most of them gave up, gave up their lives. They died for their faith, not just their faith in general, but because they believed Jesus' words were truth. We're convinced. This is truth, the embodiment of truth. A, a, an author who's influenced many church leaders around the world. I've, I've read him for many years. He, he passed away a number of years ago. Uh, phenomenal mind. He, he, he's a theologian and f- philosopher. He was a philosophy professor at the University of Southern California at USC. Lived in Los Angeles, worked uh, for many years. Dallas Willard. And if you don't know the name Dallas Willard, he has influenced pastors for the last 50 years um, as much as anyone, I would say, and the world of philosophy. And it's interesting. He would tell the story that this happened so many times with his students. His students were enamored with him. He was brilliant. The way he saw the world, his classes were riveting. And then inevitably in one of his textbooks that they're reading that he had authored or, or some lecture or a friend, a classmate would tell them, and you know he's deeply devoted to Jesus. And it would just bewilder so many students, like, here at Southern Cal, this esteemed institution, he's an esteemed, what? And they would ask him, Dr. Willard, is it true? Are you, and you know, in, in words of religion, they use the R word, you're, you're deeply religious, or you, you've committed your life to Jesus? And he would respond the same way for years to these students, when they would say, you're brilliant. You're, you've, you follow Jesus? He would say, whom else would you suggest? And his point was that you're following someone. Whether you know it or not, you're, le- you're being led by someone. You are listening to someone. Whether you are consciously aware of it or not, you are learning to live from somebody. We are always filling our minds with something, either on purpose or by accident. It's happening. Now, we say here, and it can be cliche if we're not careful. I say this. We say it here at Dulles a lot, that we believe Jesus was the greatest teacher who ever lived, and I do. I, he, he isn't just using a parable, the sweet illustration of seeds and the farmer. His teaching was so nuanced. He is exposing the arrogant Pharisees, the religious leaders, who shame people who have made mistakes or carry regret. He is exposing them while giving hope to the hurting. Jesus was masterful at the multiple layers in which he would teach God's realm, God's kingdom, God's heart what God wants to be doing in our lives. So yes, we believe he was the greatest teacher ever. But specifically, we believe here at Dulles what John says, what Paul says, that Jesus was specifically the words of God come close to us. The voice of God. Into our brokenness. Into our anxieties. 
into our dreams, our abilities and talents, our resources. And this is why we must, you must make Jesus the primary voice of your life. If God holds all eternity in his hands and he's begun recreating the world since the resurrection of Jesus. And he's moving us back to the garden not a simple place of vegetation where we just kind of walk around and look at animals. The garden being that place of creativity where humans would create in the image of God the creator. We would speak life and have the most fantastic relationships and the laughter that God intended to fill your life and my life. God is now restoring the world since the resurrection of Jesus. And he's using his church primarily today in the world. That's his intention for the church, that we would be part of that renewal. And this being true, if that's true, he should be the primary voice of your life. Informing chaotic days. Influencing the way you respond to the ugly. That person at work. You becoming a different voice of the future than what we're hearing in America constantly that divides us. Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, wrote, The most obvious thing we can do is to draw certain key portions of scripture into our minds and make them a part of the permanent fixtures of our thought. This is the primary discipline, and if you don't like the word discipline, I've added here practice. This is the primary practice for the thought life. Take truth, words, promises of God, who he is, what he wants to be doing. Not a, a future of doom and destruction, a future of renewal. How, how, has, how has church history gotten that so wrong that the future is the return of Jesus is fire and destruction? And It's amazing how that has worked itself into the theology of church around the world when the New Testament is... Jesus walked out of the tomb and renewal, power over death, began. When we feed our minds on what he actually says, the story of God, what he's working in our world, we must fix it in our minds. We must meditate and reflect. And so, here we get really practical at the end of my talk. You need to fight and scrape and sit down with your calendar, do whatever it takes. Turn the TV off, put the news on hold or limit your news intake to however many minutes a day. Do whatever it takes. Don't leave this building or don't leave the parking lot until you pull out your calendar and you figure out, when, when do I do this daily? You need to identify the words of God in Scripture. He never intended you to just come to a church building for an hour once every couple weeks. And that be enough, there's no way that is going to f compete against the voices in your week and in your society. Or the voices that you grew up with. The dominant voice in your childhood. It, there is no way this one hour on Sunday morning, once or twice or four times a month, is enough. You need the voice, the words of God, to find a place in your regular thinking. Identify them. Write them down, circle them, print them out, screenshot them. Key words of God in Scripture and regularly put them in your minds. Put them in front of you in the morning at a lunch break 
before you go to bed. As Dallas Willard says, make them a permanent fixture in your thoughts. Memorize them. And if you're not good at memorizing, when I've talked about memorizing, people are like, I can't memorize scripture. You, can, you don't have to memorize word for every word, but you reflect on it enough that you get the sense. It, it, you recall it when the person is saying the ugly, when the hurt is happening, in face of the lie. There's bad news on the television screen. That the words come flooding into you because you've made a regular place for them in your minds. Meditate on them. Meditation's everywhere today. I see it all over social media. 16-year-olds are meditating. Pro football players are meditating. Everybody's meditating. Everybody in Hollywood's meditating. And you know, it's, it's borrowing from God's cre- God created meditation. It's the Psalms. You can't read the Psalms without being challenged to meditate. And in today's world, meditating generally means empty your mind. Empty the stress. Empty, just clear your head. When God created meditation for us in ancient times, it was fill your mind with truth. Take time to consume into you truth, what God really thinks, how God, what God's love is, what he thinks of the future, what he's doing in humanity. And now I'm going to give you just a few examples from my own life. I'm going to give you the very first scripture you know, I grew up in church, and as a kid and teenager, you know, there were scriptures I knew. I knew John 3, 16. I, I could tell you maybe certain places in scripture. This was the first where God's voice jumped off the page and got into my soul, and I knew I need to read this regularly. I need to review this. I need to make this a part of my thinking. It's in Joshua chapter 1. Now, the parents' generation was being led to the promised land, and they see all the miracles of God, but then they see the giants of the promised land and the obstacles, and they're like, oh, my gosh, we're and their fear kept them from stepping in God's promise. And so God waits for the children, and the children's generation says, yes, we want what God has for us, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so after the death of Moses, after the death of the parents' generation, the Lord said to Joshua... Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them. And then it goes on to say, I'm going to give you every place you step. And the boundaries are enormous. The Mediterranean Sea and these rivers, it's going to be all the expanse of that land. And I will be with you wherever you go. You'll never go anywhere without my presence with you. And so this amazing promise continues. And then we come to verse 7. And I had heard a pastor say this, and I thought the pastor took the stage, and like, here's another, another talk. He's going to get to a scripture at some point in the Bible, and something happened in me where I later would understand it was the Spirit of God. The, the voice of God was calling deep into me, Brad, make this part of your life. Be strong and very courageous where I'm leading you to step. Be careful to obey all of my book of instruction that my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Don't let other voices distract you from what I'm leading you toward. My heart, my character, me being your God. That you may be successful wherever you go. Keep my book of instruction. And in my journal I would add Brad. Keep my book of instruction always on your lips. 
actually talking about it. That means you've got to be in community with friends. Our men's group, we have a men's fire pit group. We met last Monday night. It was pretty cold around the fire on Monday night. And we're talking about that. We're asking questions of what we're learning in Scripture and what God's doing in our lives. Keep my book of instruction, my words always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it, everything I'm instructing you, everything that's my heart for you, Brad. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Okay, two more quick examples from my life. Later, that, that, that kind of landed in me uh, when I was about 20, 21. Later, God used Luke 14 and 15 to inform me about the way I should look at others. Primarily, the way my worldview should rest when it comes to other people, imperfect people. The words of Jesus in Luke 14. The religious leaders have prepared this dinner. And it's, we, we, we learn early in 14 that it's to trap Jesus, to discredit him. He's not from God. We're going to prove it, at the, and they keep trying this. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees, considered people with um, genetic birth defects as unclean. Or someone with a condition, physical condition, is unclean, spiritually unclean people. And Jesus shows up at this dinner with someone who has a skin disease. And they freak out and this big argument ensues. And Jesus is like, you want to talk about dinner tables in my kingdom? You want to see what dinner tables look like in my realm? Pay attention, Pharisees. And I love it. I, I just, it's my favorite chapter. Jesus replied, a certain man, so he tells this parable, was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. And Jesus said that the master ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the towns and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Now that's particularly relevant in Jesus' day because these are unclean people to the Pharisees. Jesus is saying that they're the, they're the guest of honor in my dinner. Outsiders, people with guilt and regrets. And if you've been at Dulles any length of time at all, you hear me tell the story often. and We always will. Sir, the servant said, what you've ordered has been done. We've gone out to all those streets and we've brought in all these people. But there's still room. There's still room at your table. And so the story goes on. Master, well, then go further. That my table, my house would be full with unclean people, people with not from church. Yes, that's who I've come for. And then one more example of the way God wants me to look at myself. Philippians chapter 2 has become very sacred to me. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. <laughs> wow, that's a lifelong learning, doing nothing out of selfish ambition. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not, think, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset that Christ Jesus had. Who being equal to the Father, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He goes on to say, he laid his life down. Eternal king, perfect, all-powerful, lowered himself all the way down. Brad, 
have this mindset. John Ortberg said, I heard him say this about a year ago, we're always thinking about something. Why not make it something pure and true and right and good like Scripture? God's words, God's heart in Scripture. And so I close as I invite the band. The band our band's going to close us this morning. With these four prayers that I have put in front of you last week, I emailed them out this week. If you're not on our email list, let us know. We'll add you. You'll get an email about once a week. This week, would you begin every day looking for words in Scripture? It's okay if it's the same. You're in the same chapter. You keep going back. Wow, I think. Would you identify? Would you circle? Would you write down a few of those words? This is what God is telling me to let go. This is how God's leading me towards hope. And would you begin reflecting on, reading and rereading them? And start this as a daily practice. And then would you join us as we pray these four prayers now as a church, as we go into this new year? God, prayer number one, would you entirely define every aspect of my life with you, your close presence? Would you define my past and maybe regrets or things that I try to bury? Would you define that redemptively? Would you define my future, my present, my voice, my relationships, my influence, my resources, every part of my life with your beautiful close presence and your contagious love? Prayer number two, Jesus, awaken us, the people of our church, to who you actually are and what you're actually doing in our world, which is renewal and good and beauty. And may this awakening, God, may this begin with me. Daily prayer number three, God, make your church, the movement of your church, what you're doing primarily in our world today is through your church, the people of, of your church. Make your church the most exciting thing in the world to us and to our neighbors and to our neighborhoods. You may think, that sounds impossible. Would you join me in praying for this? And then the, the, the final prayer, the fourth prayer, is about our resourcing to be able to invest more into the community. God, use our church with no limitation. Give our church financial margin beyond what we can imagine and the opportunity to invest our church more into the community and into our world. That is my closing prayer today. 